Well, good morning. Hope that you all are doing well and awake. If you're not, there's coffee in the back for you. Um, my name is Markham. I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning as we begin a new series in the book of Ruth. Uh, as you heard Gabe read, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're tackling all of chapter 1. So in case you just got here, we are in Ruth 1, verses 1 through 22. As you open and load your Bibles, I have a couple of things for you, a couple of quick updates. Uh, and then, like I said, we're going to dive into our time. The first one is, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to take you out for lunch or for coffee, uh, or we'd love the opportunity to simply pray for you. And so in the chairs where you are seated, there are these connections cards. Fill one out, drop down uh, your info or your uh, prayer request, and uh, leave it in the back at the Connect desk, and we'll get back with you within the week uh, to set something up to hang out with you. In addition to that, uh, if you're new and you don't have a Bible, uh, we have Bibles for you. That is our gift for you. Uh, and so, also, in the chairs where you're at, there are Bibles along with the Connect desk. There are these Bibles Take one with you. We want to hook you up. Or if you have one, but you know someone who could use it, uh, man, then give them the gift of God's word for sure. Now, uh, here's the next one. Here's the big one. So every time, uh, or let me back up because I'm excited and I've drank a lot of coffee this morning. All right, let me back it up, right? We love to preach through books of the Bible. That, that's our thing here. Uh, and when it comes to that, uh, particularly when it comes to books, often one of the gifts that we hook y'all up with is a scripture journal from Crossway. We've done that when we walk through Philippians and Colossians and so on and so forth. This time we wanted to do something a little different. So uh, earlier this summer, we brought on an intern for about 10 weeks. His name is Alan Morales. He's on my right side, your left. Yeah, there you go. He plays the drums. He's so talented. Anyway, so as, a, as an intern, uh, as an intern, or I should say every intern that comes in uh, here at Storehouse McAllen, uh, each one has a major ministry project. Uh, and uh, depending on what area of ministry they're going to focus on kind of determines the project. And so when Alan came in toward the end of May, at the beginning of June, his project was under the, the I suppose, the Ministry of Content Development. If, if you didn't or you weren't aware, man, we love to hook you up with as much content as resources as possible. We generally give those away on our website. Uh, and so we thought instead of doing a scripture journal from Crossway as we entered into Ruth, we thought we, uh, we would have a devotional written by Alan um, in Ruth. And so we want to hook you guys up with this six-week devotional on Ruth written by Alan himself. And so, yeah. <laughs> So uh, he, uh, he tackled this project head on. Uh, man, it is very, very cool. I love what he has to say. Uh, when you get this devotional and they are in the back and uh, I think we have a case, so if we need more, we might order more. But um, you'll have the text, then you'll have a devotional that Alan wrote, and then you'll have a series of questions to help you as we walk through this series. And so Alan was pretty much engulfed with resources and coaches over the last couple of weeks, and that also included our staff who did uh, numerous edits when it came to helping Alan hone in on where we were headed with Ruth. So thank you so much to our staff who also put in time and effort 
effort to getting this together. They are freaking awesome. Yes, you, it's the staff. They're the ones that serve you. Yeah, you should clap. Um, anyway, with that being said, six-week devotional. It's for y'all. It's on Ruth. Enjoy it. Uh, and I think for now, it's a first-come, first-serve. Nevertheless, let's dive into our time because we have a lot to uh, walk through this morning. So let me begin by saying this. Everyone loves a good story. Everyone loves a good story because it captivates the imagination or it pulls at your heartstrings. I want you to consider this. What is one of your favorite stories or what is one of your favorite movies where there are two characters that are highly unlikely to meet and then they do? And within that story, they survive the problem or the threat, and they go on to live happily ever after, similarly to Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton's 1984 film, Rhinestone. <laughs> Some of y'all don't even know, but it's one of my favorite. I love Rhinestone. All the, all the Gen Zers and then what? Perhaps that's not your jam, right? Perhaps you love stories where the main character goes on to beat the fiercest of obstacles and overcomes them through significant perseverance, much like Rocky did in 1976 when he went up against Apollo Creed. Perhaps you've watched Rudy from 1993. Anybody? Yeah. Rudy Rudinger? Just making sure, some of y'all, right? I'm sure some of y'all have a favorite. You could put in whatever it is you want. The thing about these stories that sometimes pull us in is that for the most part, they're about ordinary people. And that's what draws us to these stories. And that's what makes them so beautiful. And that's what makes the, the story and the book of Ruth so attractive. You see, in Ruth, it is God working in his providence, accomplishing his will in and through a seemingly insignificant family, ordinary individuals in a time of great suffering, and two people who, according to the books, were never supposed to meet. Today we begin this six-week series on Ruth, and I'm really excited because the providence of God is most beautifully displayed in this book, among other key themes. And I believe providence is something that we need to learn more. Most churches don't often speak of God's providence, but we're going to do so over the next six weeks. You see, the providence of God, and here's your main idea, the providence of God is the comfort of God's grace in your suffering, I should say it this way, is the comfort of God's grace in both your suffering and everyday life. The providence of God is the comfort of God's grace in suffering and in everyday life. And so as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of ground to cover. So let me pray, and then we'll examine God's word together. Join me in prayer. Lord, as we begin this new series in Ruth, I pray that your providence would be a blessing and a comfort to your people this morning. I pray that we would grow a deeper appreciation and adoration for you, your word, and your work. God, open our eyes. 
expose our hearts. And we ask that you would meet us where we are with your grace this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Let's get started on Ruth. But before we look at all 22 of these verses, we need to address a couple of things, okay? We need to address at least three things. Now, these aren't going to be on your notes, so I want you to just pay attention, right? <clears throat> we need to address at least three things because they're going to help us better understand what is happening uh, at the time of, of, of Ruth. The first thing is located in verse 1. The opening of verse 1 reads, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, we don't know much about Ruth, right? But one thing we do know is that this story happened during the time of the judges. And if you've ever read Judges, or if you've never read Judges, let me say it that way, to get an idea of what's happening, why don't you flip right now, why don't you flip back to Judges, it should be the page before Ruth, and look at the last verse of chapter 21. It reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges was a time of military protection for God's people. There were no kings. There were these judges that were raised up to protect God's people for certain seasons. Yet, yet at the same time, the people of God were steeped in deep rebellion and corruption. Rather than turning from their sin and turning to God, they rebelled and entangled themselves further in their sin. Yet, it is in the midst of God's people rebelling that we learn of a little family where God intervenes to not only protect the royal lineage of the king of Israel, which would become King David, but to accomplish his redemptive purposes through Jesus Christ. That's number one. The second thing we need to understand as we read Ruth is that we need to um, properly define providence because it is one of the major themes in Ruth. It is not the only one, but it is one of the major and prominent themes in Ruth. There is a difference between providence and miracles, yet often many Christians use them interchangeably. Miracles, let me be clear, miracles are when God intervenes to accomplish his will and purpose, but suspends natural law. Right? Where it's completely supernatural, he suspends natural law, time, and order to accomplish his will. That's a miracle. When it comes to providence, it is where God intervenes without suspending natural law, using ordinary time, and is at work behind the scenes, accomplishing his will and purpose. For instance, when we read through Ruth, you're going to see that God is, for the most part, working behind the scenes. You don't necessarily experience something like the prophets do, where they have a vision, or God speaks to them directly, and then they go out and say, thus saith the Lord, and they go out and speak for God, or they received a word from God. You don't see that in Ruth. There's no miracles that is happening. There's not this big event that is taking place in Ruth. It, for the most part, seems to be very ordinary. And finally, we need to look at some clever misuses, misuses about how Ruth is sometimes taught. 
Often, many get excited about Ruth, not only because there's a love story involved, but because that's primarily all they look at, because that's primarily all that's ever taught, right? That Ruth is this love story, that if you wait long enough, you can be like Boaz, or ladies, you will get your Boaz. If you've never read Ruth, Boaz is some dude we'll learn about later. Here's what one pastor said, Jensen Franklin. When it's Friday night and you're freaking out because you don't have a date, you got to let God take you through the wilderness. And you got to wait on your Boaz. It's kind of dumb, right? (laughs) Here's why. What happens if that day doesn't come? What if it is the wilderness but there isn't this Boaz figure, or there isn't this Ruth figure at the end of it. What then? What happens then? See, when we look throughout Scripture, oftentimes we see the people of God suffering. It doesn't necessarily paint this picture of, if I wait long enough, I'm going to get my Boaz. Like, no, you, you might not. Though we see God working behind the scenes, I want to assure you about something in Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are not the main characters. God is. We don't simply look to Ruth or Boaz for the one who will come through them, but we look to them for the significance of their godly character. Pastor Tony Marita says it this way. Having godly character provides a way in which God can work through us. Following Ruth's example is not about taking the moral high ground. It is about bearing fruit as we remain devoted to Christ. The Holy Spirit works in us to produce good works. Godly living is how we show ourselves to be Christ's disciples and bring glory to Him. So those are three quick things that we need to have at the forefront as we walk through Ruth. It is at the time of Judges. Uh, Number two, uh, the significance of providence. And then three, God is the main character here. So here's how we're going to break down all 22 verses. We're going to look at three sections. We're going to look at compromise, and that's going to consist of verses 1 through 5. The cost, which is verses 6 through 18. And finally, callousness, which is 19 through 22. I'm not going to read each section. Gabe went ahead and read the whole chapter, which was what we wanted. And so make sure that you have your Bibles open because I'm going to jump around in these sections as we walk through them. So let's begin with verses 1 through 5. Here, we're going to look primarily at three things. We're going to look at famine, family, and forfeit. I think on your notes it says forget. I changed it this morning. My bad, guys. Anyway, family, or excuse me, famine, family, and forfeit. Okay, let's begin with famine. Go back to verse 1, right? I'm just going to reread a portion of it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In verse 1, we are given a little bit more of a glimpse as to what is happening uh, around and to the people of God. The writer tells us that there was a famine in Bethlehem, which means that there's a scarcity of food. Now, that's kind of interesting because uh, what the name Bethlehem means is the house of bread. 
And so the people of God are running out of food. There is no bread. There is no food in the house of bread. It's like going to like the Alba, la panaderia, right? And there's, they don't have what they are supposed to have. There's scarcity. Now, this famine could possibly have been brought on as a means of judgment in the form of discipline from God to his people. When we read through this, we need to have a little bit of understanding from the Old Testament. And so when it comes to the Old Testament, we kind of need to read Ruth with Deuteronomy in mind. In Deuteronomy 28 and in uh, chapters 28 and 30, God tells his people that he will bless them as they gaze upon him and follow him and obey him. But if they disobey, if they refuse to repent, if they turn away from him, that there will be curse upon them. So more than likely, this famine was brought on as a means of discipline from God to his people, right? Famine, for the most part in the Old Testament, has been used for both discipline of God's people, but also deliverance of God's people. In this case, it seems to be the result of discipline due to a lack of repentance, due to a lack of living a a life of godliness. Remember, Ruth is happening in the time of the judges. So the people of God are wiling out, they're rebelling, they're turning uh, away from God and turning to other idols and other gods, and they are doing whatever it is they want, whenever it is they want, however it is they want. So more than likely, this famine was brought on as a result of discipline. And so here's what I want you to know when it comes to this. Discipline is something that the Lord uses not simply to grab our attention, but to correct us. God uses discipline not just to grab our attention. I think most times that's where many preachers might stop. Oh, God's trying to grab your attention. No, he's, he's correcting you. In Hebrews 12, we see the author say that that God disciplines those whom he loves, his sons, his children. And the purpose of discipline, yes, is correction, but so that our hearts would be aligned with his will. Secondly, we come to meet this family. This family consists of four people, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion. All right? Here's what their names mean. Elimelech's name means God is king. Naomi's name means something to the extent of sweet or pleasant. Malon and Kilion, on the other hand, their names mean sick and something like dying. Okay? Now you would think, like, why would their parents name them sick and dying? Before you go there, right? Many scholars believe that these were not their given names. For the purpose of the story, these are the names that they are given here to foreshadow what's about to happen. Okay? I just want to be really clear on that. Now, with all that being said, due to the famine, we see this man, Elimelech, and he decides to move his family about 30 miles from Bethlehem to Moab. Now, here is where Elimelech drops the ball. You see, in these five verses, or in these first three verses, we never see Elimelech seek God. We don't see him receive any kind of counsel, and we don't see him seek God through prayer as he thinks about what he needs to do. 
Now, uh, to be clear, you can see why he's trying to think through this. There's no food in Bethlehem. Maybe he heard that there is some food and jobs in Moab. So it seems like a logical decision. This is nothing is happening here. I should move my family over here. He's thinking primarily as a provider, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. However, he does not seek any counsel from God or the people of God. He never at one point turns to God. Instead, he takes his family to Moab, a place and a people who do not worship the God of Israel. So there are no gospel-centered churches in Moab. Instead, they worship the God Chemosh, who is all about human sacrifice. So these are pagans. Additionally, these people are known to be sexually perverse. To better understand the Moabites, we need to go back to Genesis 19, where we are introduced, not introduced, but we, we learn of this dude named Lot. Lot, in Genesis 19, ends up having sex with his two daughters, right? The, the, the children that they birth are come to known as the Moabites, right? And so these are the kind of people, this is the kind of city that Elimelech wants to move his family to. There's no good churches, uh, there's no biblical community, there's no council, there's no prayer. And he decides to move them to Moab. Now here's the point. Just because something makes practical sense doesn't mean it's wise. Just because something makes practical sense doesn't mean it's wise. For Elimelech, instead of there being conviction where he's repenting of his own sin or praying and seeking God or calling others, since he is around the people of God, calling others to fix their eyes upon God and to repent of their sin, rather than there being conviction, there was compromise. The irony is that his name means God is king, but he doesn't live like he is, just like some of you don't. Elimelech stands as a warning to us that when we do what is right in our own eyes, we compromise. And as we compromise, we forfeit God. So let's move into that third piece, forfeiting. In moving to Moab, we see this little family encounter absolute devastation. At some point, Elimelech dies, and both sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And if that's not enough, the sons die. I mean, could you imagine what Naomi is thinking and experiencing in this time? She's had to move from her city, from the people of God, from her cultures. She's at uh, Moab. Her husband dies. They bury her husband. Then her sons get married to, to, to Moabite women, and then they die. And so she's now attending their funeral. Could you imagine the amount of grief that she is encountering in this kind of a season? But in that, what we see is that compromise not only leads, compromise, let me say it this way, compromise leads to ongoing forfeit. 
You see, when it comes to Malon and Kilion, both of these men married women who did not know the Lord. And while it wasn't against God's word to marry a Moabite, it was discouraged because they did not know the Lord. So perhaps she gave them the green light, she gave them the thumbs up to ease her grief. But even in doing so, there was still compromise. See, the opening section of Ruth is filled with heartache. So let me ask you, church, where are you compromising today? Where is it that you're compromising right now? You see, for this family, it didn't happen day after day. When we read through verses 1 through 5, it sounds as if everything is happening one day after the next. But verse 4 tells us that they were in Moab for at least 10 years. And so there's this slow drip of compromise over time. At the end of verse 5, we see that Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are now widows. And in the midst of their pain, there seems to be no protection, no hope, no answers. You could ask the question, and what is God doing? Ruth doesn't sound so like uh, Disney in the first five verses. But the opening of Ruth is a reminder to us that when we do what is right in our own eyes, we compromise on God, the Word of God, and the people of God. Let's go to the next section, the cost. Right, this begins in verse 6, and we'll go through verse 18. Much like our first section, we're going to examine another three things in this. We're going to look at grace, kindness, and salvation. And when it comes to kindness and salvation, they're kind of going to overlap one another. So I'm going to go back and forth on that. Let's begin with grace. This starts off in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that is Naomi, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. I want you to circle the word visited. Visited his people and given them food. So one day, Naomi comes to learn that the famine is over in Bethlehem, and God visited his people. So now, not only did God provide, but God has lifted that curse. So more than likely, we are seeing the people of God repent of their sin, turn to the Lord. He is giving them, uh, he's providing them not just with food, but he's also visiting them with his grace. That word visited is another word for grace. So it, it, it could be as this, that, that the Lord is comforting them with his grace and provides them with food. Additionally, in this uh, verse, it's actually the first time we hear of God in the story. We don't, we don't know how Naomi heard the news that Bethlehem had bread, that the house of bread was full again. We, we don't know how she heard the news, right? There's no email. It's not like somebody texts her Right? It's not that somebody shared a story on Instagram. Like We have no idea how Naomi heard that uh, the famine was over. But we do know that upon hearing the news, she was ready to return home. And in chapter 1, you read of the word return 
often, about 12 times. And this is to show the significance and impact of the word because it displays not just their arrival back to Bethlehem, but it's going to uh, examine or expose, that's a better word, it's going to expose the condition of their hearts. And so the first thing that we see in, in this second section is God's grace upon his people. That as they repent of their sin, not just is this curse lifted, but he blesses them. He visits them with his grace and he provides for them. Additionally, in verses 8 through 14, we see the kindness of God extended through Naomi. So at some point, as she takes her daughters-in-law, they're going back to Bethlehem. At some point, maybe at a rest area, just like when you're traveling to San Antonio, maybe at a rest area, Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah that they need to return to Moab. At some point, something changes in Naomi. Verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Circle that word, kindly. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest and each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. In this prayer, Naomi prays over them. You, you see her intentions. She's trying to do good by them, by even, by even praying over them. And she uses this word kindly. Now, in the original language, this, this word in the Hebraic language is chesed. Chesed is, is God's covenantal love toward his people. That he's made a covenant with them, that he is faithful to them, that he uh, loves them and he pursues us. It's interesting that Naomi uses this word to pray over Ruth and Orpah. And even though there's still a little bit of compromise, at one point uh, the girls say, no, we're still going to go with you, and eventually Orpah decides to leave and go back home, Naomi tells Ruth, you should leave like Orpah does. She's going to go back to her home and her gods. So there's, there's a little bit of compromise in the midst of really good, solid prayer, <laughs> right? But here's the key. It's in verse 14. In verse 14, uh, it reads, <clears throat> Then they lifted up their voices. They wept again. This is as she uh, told them to leave once again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But here it is. Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Now, keep that kindness, like, keep that on the forefront of your mind. We're going to revisit that right now. Keep kindness at the forefront of your mind. That chesed, that covenantal love that God has for his people. So we see kindness. Now we look at salvation in verses 15 to 18. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's so good. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. She's talking about Orpah, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, now mind you, Ruth actually doesn't talk a lot in Ruth. But when she does, she packs a punch, man. Here it is. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death 
parts me from you. Now, you hear that quoted at every wedding, right? Everybody's like, yeah, it's so, it's so great. It is. Uh, let's look at some, some context, right? Check it. The first thing is that we see the grace of salvation come upon Ruth the Moabite, the one who came from the people who did not know God. Now we see her pursuing and loving and a follower of God. She is a follower of Yahweh. And in so doing, this new Christian calls out the veteran. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. In its original language, she's not being suggestive. She uses a firm tone with Naomi. It's almost like a command. Don't tell me to leave. What's so interesting about this is Ruth flips the table of hesed. She flips the table of kindness and now is showing it to Naomi. It's the same covenantal love that God has for his people. That it is faithful, that it pursues, that it's not going away. She flips the table of kindness on Naomi and demonstrates exactly what God does for his people. Additionally, here's what we see Ruth do. She counts the cost of not just staying with Naomi, but following God. She leaves behind her city. She leaves behind her family. She forfeits her idols. She leaves behind her culture, her values, her ethnic identity, all of that stuff. She leaves it behind and she submits herself to the God of Israel. Look at the end where she says, may the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. She submits to the will of God. What's so beautiful and impactful about this story of transformation is that you and I were there. You and I were the alienated ones. You and I were the ones outside of God's covenant and God's people. Paul says it this way to the Colossians, which we looked at in in the spring. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It is the grace of God that folded Ruth into the family of God. And it is the same thing that happens to us through Christ. It is the grace of God in Christ that folds us in to the family of God. For Ruth, she's just submitted and committed herself, yes, to Naomi, but more importantly, to Yahweh. Now, here's the thing. She doesn't know. She doesn't know what God is doing. She she does not know, at this point, she doesn't know that she's going to be King David's great-grandmother. All she's done is submitted herself to the will of God. And this section in verse 18 closes with Naomi's silence. I mean, what can she say after that? Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. In that moment of transformation, it wasn't just her submitting to the will of God. Ruth counted the cost of following God. 
in this section, we're brought hope in suffering through the providence of God, by the grace of God, toward his people and those whom he is calling to himself. Let's look at the last section, callousness. In verses 19 through 22, we see that Naomi and Ruth finally arrive in Bethlehem, and Naomi's heart is exposed. Verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Now, that word stirred, it could mean that they were gossiping, it could mean that uh, they were just talking amongst themselves, it could mean a number of things. And the whole, ha- uh, the whole town um, was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? So perhaps it was individuals who knew Naomi before they left to Moab. And so they're concerned with Naomi returning and the state that she is con- uh, returning in. And, and what's, so, what's so significant about this is that in light of what God has been doing in and through them on their return to Bethlehem, we see that Naomi is bitter but not broken. She's bitter, but she's not broken. So when the the women ask, is this Naomi? This is how she responds. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? you can understand perhaps the depth of grief she should have. But what we see here is that rather than her grieved, she's bitter. And she calls God Almighty, which is his title for his sovereignty, but she's not using, she's not using it in a worshipful manner. She's not saying, man, God is sovereign in spite of everything that we have walked through the Almighty has taken care of it. She's not using it in that way. She's using uh, that title bitterly, if that's a word. Almost sarcastically. She's bitter at his sovereignty despite two things. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is now a follower of Yahweh, is committed to following God, is committed to the people of God, and in particular, Naomi. And number two, she is returning to Bethlehem during the barley harvest. What does that mean? It means that there's food. It means that God's provision is where the people of God are. And so here's what you and I need to realize in light of this section. You can be theologically accurate. See, Naomi does a wonderful job in the last section and in this section of, man, giving God his proper titles. She uh, prays for the girls, a really good prayer, mind you. Like, you can be theologically accurate and your heart bitter, hardened, and distant from the Lord. Naomi left in a time of famine faithlessness, and even infertility, and now returns during a time of food and flourishing, faithfulness as Ruth has counted the cost. And what they don't know is that God will work in and through Ruth to protect the royal lineage that will ultimately lead 
to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What's really clear about this last section is that we see Naomi's heart exposed. But rather than turning to God, she grows bitter. Are you bitter? One of the reasons we have the Lord's Supper on Sunday is because this keeps us from growing bitter. God's work in Christ for you. Are you bitter? Are you compromising? Do you just count the cost on your Instagram bio? But is it actually a life of godly character and godly living that you walk? The providence of God is the comfort of God's grace for you in suffering and in everyday life. I chose to add the everyday life because it's not just God's providence at work in suffering. We see that in this text, but it's not just in suffering. Earlier this week, I was on the phone with an older saint, and she was bringing me up to speed on all the things in her life. And at the end, I asked, Man, how could I pray for you? And she says, Pastor Marco, I don't, I don't have uh, sin to confess right now. And I said, that's a good thing. Uh, just because you get asked, how can I pray for you, doesn't imply that you're living in sin. That's, that's a good thing. So, so man, let's praise God for what he has been doing in and through you in all of these little areas of your life that it wasn't until we stopped to look back that we can see God's hand at work in your life. So let's do that. The providence of God is the comfort of God's grace for you in suffering and in the everyday. And so what do we learn from Ruth as we close this up? What do we learn from Ruth in this first chapter? Here would be the first thing. Even in the darkest times, God is at work. Because you and I can read Ruth so we're looking back at what God would have done or will have done through Ruth. And we see that God is going to use Ruth to be the conduit of grace for Israel. That she's going to be King David's great-grandmother. The same lineage that Jesus Christ will come through where, where God will enter into human history to live the life that you and I can't live. Die the death that you and I deserve to die and then reconciles us to the Father. Additionally, what we learn is God's grace for outsiders. Ruth was a Moabite. She was outside the people of God. And yet God saves Ruth. The grace of God saves her and folds her into the family of God. In short, that's yours and my story. No one is born a Christian. We were all outsiders, alienated, estranged, enemies, orphans. And God in His mercy and grace through Christ has rescued us and reconciled us to Himself. And finally, we learn about the significance of biblical community. 
Ruth commits herself to God and the people of God, even when, listen to me on this, even when the people of God are hard to love. I mean, what was it like going back to Bethlehem with Naomi? Naomi's like kicking cans. I hate this, right? They get to Bethlehem, and Naomi's like, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. I went away happy. Now I'm an emo, right? Like, that's what, what she's saying in that sense, right? She's just like kicking it, right? And you see Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, right? That verse 14, Ruth clung to her. And then verse 16, don't tell me to leave you because I'm not. Where you go, I will go. Here we learn that as Christians, we're not just committed to God. We're also committed to the people of God, especially you can underline that and capitalize it bold, put red lettering on that, especially when the people of God are hard to love. When that happens, can you and I respond like Ruth did? Don't tell me to leave because I won't. I'm going to cling to you whether you like it or not. The people of God are meant to help us see what God is doing or to simply pray with us. Knowing Christ, we can look back and see the work of God in the book of Ruth. And the beauty of all of this is that you and I have been grafted into the same family by the grace of God. So as we close, Christian, where are you compromising right now? What is it that you are forfeiting? Is it a relationship with God? The Word of God? Counsel? Community? good biblical community. Maybe you're in a group, or maybe you were in a group, or maybe you have like two or three solid friends who are going to speak truth into you, or maybe you don't have that because you don't want truth spoken into you. Godly character is centered upon the goodness of God in spite of circumstances. We learned that in Psalm 27. So church, turn away from compromise and, and idols. Turn toward the beauty and splendor of God in Christ for you. Confess your sin this morning. Lay your heart bare on the table. Repent. And may God's grace meet you where you are. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here because right now, you don't know Jesus. You are alienated. You are not a friend, but an enemy of God. Yet, in his providence, he sent the Lord Jesus to die for sinners and pardons all who turn from their sin and repentance and faith. So turn toward him. You will receive a new heart. I'm not going to tear you money. I'm not going to say your circumstance is going to get better. Probably won't. Don't know that. But I do know that you will receive a new heart. Church, the providence of God is the comfort of God's grace in your suffering and in your everyday life. Praise be to God for a book like Ruth. Let's pray. God, as we close our time in this first part of, of Ruth and in your presence, we confess our sinfulness 
our shortcomings and our offenses to you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in rejecting your grace, in forgetting your love for us. So Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would forgive our sins and help us, Holy Spirit, to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior. Lord, in the same vein, we praise you for the Lord Jesus who has rescued us from our bondage to sin, who is reshaping our hearts to not stop loving, but to love the one who is faithful, to love those who you continue to call to yourself. We praise you for the Holy Spirit who continues to work in us as we fix our eyes upon Jesus. And we praise you for your providence, though we can't always see it. May Ruth serve as an example to gaze upon the beauty of your work, drawing us closer to yourself. Lord, may we find comfort in the grace of your providence this morning. And may the words of our mouth and meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.